0: Hi there, I'm Mark Legere, the Huddle producer who helps edit Don and David's podcast each week. In early January, we're planning a special edition of the podcast, an opportunity for you to ask David and Don about the big issues for the region's economy in 2023. Do you have a question for them? Send us an email at news at huddle.today and we'll get it on the list for David and Don. That's news at huddle.today. Now on with the show.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills.
2: And I'm David Campbell.
1: David, it's a shame you couldn't join us for the conversation that we had with Sean Frazier. I I came away from that uh, conversation feeling very optimistic about the immigration uh, file. Seems that the government's done a lot of good thinking on this one. I have to give them credit for it. They've got a pretty good strategy going going forward, uh, you know, especially given the announcement that they wanted to um, open up 500,000 spots for immigrants by 2025. I think it's 2025, uh, which is you know uh, it's a 25% increase from where we are today. So you know, that's a big aggressive number. I explained the reasons for the need for that number. uh, And uh, we talked about a lot of the challenges that go with that kind of growth.
2: So that's good news. I mean, obviously, you and I have been talking about it, and we understand the importance of immigration to the future of the country. but, But the concern has always been, will there be enough to meet each province's demand? And so we are seeing Big increases in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Of course, PEI has had good numbers going back to 2010. And you're comfortable after your conversation with the with the minister that um, that we're going to be able to attract the talent we need to support population growth in the years ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, one of the things that I, I, I took note of, and I think the listeners will be interested in this as well, is that um, basically the government has is developing a strategy that says we are going to put the right immigrant in the right location. And so in other words, matching up the needs of the community with the availability of uh, talent that's coming into the country. So Uh, I think this is really important for communities that are outside kind of the six major urban areas in Atlantic Canada who want to attract people to their community. The nomination program, which is really what he was referring to, allows communities and or organizations and or companies to identify a specific skill need that they need. And uh, the government then will find those people and get them to come to your community. So this means that community, the smaller communities need to be a lot more proactive in understanding their labor requirements and getting into the queue to get their share of the new talent coming to this country. And by the way, uh, this is something I didn't understand, but I was really grateful uh, for the explanation of the 500,000 uh, people. New immigrants slated to come to this country, in, by 2025, uh, between, uh, 55 and by twenty twenty five, between fifty five and sixty percent are in the nominee program. In other words, uh, there has been a, a job identified for those people in communities, and uh, that's you know that's the main part of uh, the immigration stream currently. Uh, there is another, uh, I guess, twenty to twenty five percent or so coming from the family reunification uh, side of the equation. And then the rest uh, this year, uh, it's about 75,000, are refugees coming from countries like Syria, Afghanistan, and the Ukraine. So that gave us a pretty good idea of kind of uh, the different streams and uh, anticipates that, um, uh, that that basic uh, breakdown will probably uh, not change that much uh, over the next couple of years.
2: You guys talked about the increasing role of the post-secondary education system as a conduit for these for these annual refugees. What did you learn about uh, our university yeah. and college system?
1: What I learned is that the number of foreign students coming to the country continues to increase. I think it's going to be up uh, uh, near a half of, uh, a million people in the coming year. I also learned something that was really interesting of the nominees or, or the people who are you know, uh, coming to this country for, uh, jobs, um, over 150 are anticipated coming from post-secondary graduates already in the country, uh, studying and, and living as Canadians, which I think is a really interesting insight because <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, that I asked the minister was, you know, the, the pressures on housing, for an example, in healthcare, and he said one of the one of the things about uh, new graduates coming out of the post-secondary from, you know, foreign countries is that they already have accommodations and, and they're already hopefully a little bit more into the healthcare system. So the, the, the need there for about a third of people coming in is a little less than, than I would have anticipated. So it takes a little bit of pressure off, but he recognized nonetheless that housing and Healthcare and and also education are, are are pressure points right now in society, uh, and the government has uh, has taken some action against those. Probably not enough. More needs to be done. But he's like you, David. He says he would rather handle growth, the problems of growth, than the problems of decline. And I I, I guess I have to agree agree with both of you on that because eventually we'll catch up. It will be painful in the, in, in the short term, but eventually we'll close the gap and be able to make sure we have a, an adequate housing uh, market, an adequate healthcare system to deal with the kind of growth that Canada's going through, which he pointed out is that the uh, I think Canada leads the world in immigration right now, and certainly uh, is a, a leader in refugees as well.
2: So he's got his own problems internal in terms of a backlog. Did you guys get a chance to discuss what they're doing to try and address that uh, significant backlog in uh, in applications?
1: Indeed, I did. You know, I think it's 1.2 million that last count waiting to get approval to come to Canada. It's a big problem. He explained the reasons for the problem. Some of it uh, actually makes sense. Uh, you know, we have a lot of... Uh, post outside the country for immigrants uh, coming in. A lot of those were closed down during uh, COVID and and they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, They, you know, they recognize the problem of the backlog. They're hiring uh, um, lots of uh, new employees to address the issue, but they also recognize it's going to take some time to get through the backlog. And it's probably not going to be until at least a year before they're kind of back to the normal uh, timeframes for approval. So, you know, um, Recognizing the problems, the first <laughs> part of solving it, and uh, it looks like they're they're on it as well.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to hearing the conversation, Don.
1: Well, I, I just uh, for those people who have got this far in the podcast, this is a, this is a great overview of Canada's strategy when it comes to population growth, labor force uh, management, and immigration. And I think you'll see, as I did, that the, we have to give the government credit. They seem to be doing a very good job on this. So here's our conversation. Sean, welcome to our podcast. Uh, it's
3: good to be here. Thank you so much for hosting.
1: Uh, let's start by finding out a little bit more about you. Uh, I'd like to understand how you first became involved in politics. And what was the path that led you to your current role as uh, a senior member of the Trudeau cabinet?
3: Uh, you know, if you want to see my first involvement in politics, you've got to go back quite a long ways. In grade two, I was the vice president of the Environment Club at my elementary school. In, uh, <laughs> grade uh, two, really? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but look, in, in all seriousness, um, uh, our family was it was engaged as sort of volunteers on, on local campaigns growing up. And uh, I was around it, but never really necessarily thought it was something that I, I intend to do for myself. Uh, after I finished at uh, saint uh doing my undergraduate degree, uh, I was involved in student politics there, and I had a few folks uh, who were alumni of the university push me to go to law school. Uh, I had a chance uh, when I finished law school, like uh, almost everybody else my age in Atlanta, Canada, uh, to move out to Calgary to gain a little bit of experience. Uh, from there, I spent um, a couple of years working overseas, uh, first uh, studying and working overseas. Uh, first uh, studying international law in The Hague in the Netherlands and then working for a human rights organization in South Africa. And when I came back as a, uh, a broke recent graduate and needed to pay off those student loans, I found myself uh, back in Calgary for a few years. And an opportunity opened up in, in 2015 uh, with the retirement of my predecessor, uh, Peter McKay. And uh, I had a lot of people reach out and encourage me to think about it. And within a few weeks, uh, I had uh I'd taken a leave from my uh, work as a lawyer and uh, was out knocking doors. Um, uh, from there, I had a cool opportunity to uh, have a few different uh, portfolios as a parliamentary secretary, first on the environment uh, and then uh, as the parliamentary secretary to the minister of finance, where we helped develop a lot of the economic relief programs during the pandemic. And after the last federal election, uh, the prime minister asked if I would Uh, joined the cabinet to serve as Canada's Minister of Immigration. And uh, I think the exact words out of my mouth were that is a much bigger job than I thought you were going to give me today. Uh, So uh, from there, it's been a a wild ride. But that's the rough path um, uh, from growing up in rural Nova Scotia to the uh, job I hold today.
1: Well, it's you know it's a role that's um, doubly important um, to this region. So I think it's a great time um, to have a minister of immigration uh, from this region, and of course we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit uh, later in the podcast. Um, the federal government recently announced a very significant increase in immigrants uh, beginning next year uh, to five hundred thousand. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago we were around two hundred thousand, I guess, uh, Sean. Can you tell us what is the driving motivation behind this increase?
3: Yeah. You know, sometimes I I find uh, people who work in government have the bad habit of making uh, simple problems sound more complicated than they need to be just because they're big. Uh, But to me, the answer is is fairly straightforward. Uh, Canada needs more people. Uh, We need more people for economic reasons. We need more people for demographic reasons. On the economic uh, side of the equation, Um, We're dealing with uh, an economic context that's really important to understand. Uh, Despite very real challenges at a household level, uh, Canada has had one of the strongest economic recoveries of any advanced economy in the world. Uh, We've recovered about 117% of the jobs that were lost during the pandemic. Our our GDP Hmm. is well in excess of pre-pandemic levels. Uh, And this summer, we actually hit the lowest uh, recorded level in Canada's history of unemployment. Uh, And despite these uh, important successes, uh, you walk down Main Street of any community in Canada, there's going to be a Help Wanted sign in the window. Uh, We had almost a million jobs open in the Canadian economy at a time when nearly 100% of our labour force growth already comes from immigration. Uh, We can't train Canadians quickly enough to fill the gaps in the labour market that exist today and to uh, prepare for the skills gap uh, that is going to exist over the next generation. So we need to grow our immigration numbers. Um, but in addition to the economic imperative, if there is an alarm bell that I wanna be sounding, it's over our uh, aging population. Uh, 50 years ago, Don, there were seven workers for every retired person in this country. Uh, today, there's about three. Uh, in our region in Atlanta, Canada, the number's closer to two. Um, If we wanna be having conversations uh, about our economy uh, 20 years from now, we'll be lucky uh, if we stay on our current trajectory to be talking about a labor shortage. My fear is we're gonna be talking about schools and hospitals closing that we can't afford if we don't bring the workers into the country and develop the skills that we need uh, to ensure we can pay for the services that an aging population will demand. Uh, So we need to grow our immigration numbers as part of the solution. It's not the only solution, uh, but if we choose not to grow our immigration numbers, that's a choice not to grow our economy in a way that will allow us to sustain basic public services that I think we too often take for granted.
1: Maybe you can, for our listeners, put in context where Canada is per capita on immigration compared to the rest of the world. Can you give us an idea of where Canada stands on that?
3: Yeah, so just so people appreciate what's going on. um, The year before we formed government, we were growing our population at about the same pace as uh, every other G7 economy. There was about 240,000 new permanent residents in 2014, the last full year before we assumed office. By 2025, uh, we'll be going to 500,000 new permanent residents uh, in that year. Um, That puts us nearly double the population growth rate uh, of our G7 counterparts. Uh, Right now, it's uh, a little better than uh, one in five uh, Canadians uh, came from another country. Um, This sounds like a lot, but you gotta remember Canada's history. Uh, If your family's not Indigenous, Um, The opening chapter of your family's history was written by a migrant. Uh, My family happened to come from Scotland 250 years ago. It's not a coincidence that I still live in Pictou County, 10 or 15 minutes away from the first Scottish settlers uh, that landed in Nova Scotia. Um, It's an interesting dynamic that's not unique exclusively to Canada, but unique compared to most countries in the world. And I don't think people have forgotten uh, our history. And to see that we continue to welcome large numbers of newcomers is an enormous competitive advantage for our economy. And if you read the credit rating agencies reports, our willingness to embrace immigration is one of the reasons that they continue to maintain a a stable outlook with a AAA credit rating uh, because they know that employers and investors are going to be able to better access the talent they need for businesses to grow compared to our other uh, comparator economies around the world.
1: Yeah. Up until only recently, the population in Canada has been growing at a very steady and predictable pace of about 1% a year. This is what I used to do for a living, so I was tracking this forever. And um, that that was an important number because it, like, it, it was growth under control, I guess, and um, easy to absorb. Uh, given the increased goals for immigration, the population will grow much faster than 1%. Um, uh, which has been that norm for the last half century. Indeed, I think the population in the last year was grew one point eight percent, almost double the rate. There are some concerning signs about Canada's ability to keep pace with the increased uh, growth. Um, uh, what you know what what specific actions um, is the government undertaking to address the pressure that this increased growth is having on health care, education, and the housing that's caused by this higher level of growth, Sean? Uh,
3: look, this is one of the most important questions you can ask. Uh, it's not uh, enough to get people here. We have to make sure that they're set up for success and that our communities are set up to uh, be successful as we welcome larger numbers of, uh, of, uh, of immigration into our communities. Um, so there's a couple of different aspects to the answer to this question. Some of them touch on uh, the way that we uh, bring in newcomers, and some of them uh, focus on the way we actually directly target the policy areas that you mentioned. Uh, so, first on the immigration side of things, uh, this immigration levels plan that I tabled in the House of Commons uh, in November uh, is quite thoughtful in terms of uh, who we are bringing and how we are bringing them here. Uh, more specifically, where they're bringing, where we're bringing them to. So. The answer to, if we look at housing, for example, the answer to uh, a housing shortage is not to close the door to newcomers, it's to build more houses. Uh, Similarly, when it comes to uh, healthcare, it's not to shut people out of the country, it's to bring in people who have the skills uh, that are going to actually help contribute solutions to our healthcare challenges. Um, We've developed a new tool that's going to be available this spring, so this calendar year we'll start deploying a new more flexible immigration system that for the first time is going to allow us to target workers by the sector in which they're coming and the region in which they're going to. Uh, we've made no secret about our intention to bring in more healthcare workers and more skilled tradespeople with the talents that are needed to build housing. Uh, so we can actually bring in the people that have the skills we need to solve some of these social challenges. And I think it would be a, an enormous mistake not to do so. Uh, in addition to bringing people in with the skills that we need to solve these challenges, we also have a plan to help incentivize them to by uh, encouraging them to go to areas that have the greater absorptive capacity, uh, communities that have additional access to healthcare services or housing as the case may be. Now, there's no perfect way to do this because of course, when somebody lands in Canada as a permanent resident, they have mobility rights and can travel. Uh, But we did uh, develop a handful of regional uh, economic migration programs that uh, focus on pushing people to some of the less crowded parts of Canada, so to speak. Uh, We've expanded this summer, the rural and Northern immigration pilot. Uh, We had uh, significantly increased the spaces to the Atlantic immigration program. We're increasing the allocations to the provincial nominee program. So provinces have more control to send people to parts of their province uh, that have the ability to um, uh, better absorb uh, newcomers as a result of housing or healthcare capacity. And the new uh, express entry tools I mentioned that are more flexible, don't just allow us to select healthcare workers or, or skilled tradespeople. They allow us to uh, prioritize applications that are destined for parts of the country that may have a greater absorptive capacity. So there's not a, a silver bullet here. Uh, you have to use every tool in the toolbox if you're going to mitigate the pressures that more people add to your housing or healthcare systems. Uh, but in addition, uh, we're also investing directly uh, in some of these policy areas. Uh, the National Housing Strategy is pouring tens of billions of dollars into the creation of hundreds of thousands of new housing units. I think of my own hometown of uh, Pictou County with a, a multi million dollar investment through the Rapid Housing Initiative uh, that got 36 people in affordable housing units uh, this summer in a matter of months. Um, We look at some of the other investments that we always make uh, with the healthcare transfers to the provinces, uh, which we're looking to increase. Uh, And of course, we're doing the uh, ordinary dance with provinces to negotiate a deal. And I, I think we are... Uh, well on our, our solid ground to insist on uh, getting certain outcomes as a result for the transfers that we may send to the provinces. Uh, but that's a, a conversation that we need to continue to work towards. And I, I think we have a good partner in Nova Scotia as well to help uh, continue to increase the uh, federal funding toward healthcare. Uh, so by uh, a combined effort of making direct investments in things like housing and healthcare, and uh, adopting smart immigration policies that bring in the skills that we need and encourage people to go to areas that have more capacity, we can manage much larger growth. Uh, the one thing we're not short on in Canada uh, is space. Uh, we have the ability to accommodate a much larger population. Uh, we just have to make the right policy decisions to make sure we do it in a seamless way that improves health care and housing outcomes for Canadians rather than puts more pressure on the system.
1: Yeah, there's some good news in that what you just said, especially for this region, um, which has really not had its share of immigrants until only recently. And I'm particularly happy that uh, the provinces have a little bit more control over things like the nominee program in particular. Um, and I'm also uh, pleased to hear that the, the government uh, recognizes the opportunity to look at the less populated areas of, of the country that's all that's all really good uh, news. I'm going to come back to Atlanta Canada in a moment um, to uh, talk about that a little bit more but um, a recent uh, public opinion research from Enveronics Institute, you may have noticed, indicated a very high level of support for immigration Canada. I think it's at the highest level ever, uh, you know, a clear majority support uh, immigration. That's really good news. Um, uh, but I wondered, is there a risk to the support by the strain that increased, uh, the, the increase in immigration is having on access to housing and health care? Do you think that Canadians who are currently living in here will start to blame immigrants for the problems in those areas?
3: Uh, look, there is always risk uh, that uh, social attitudes uh, on any policy area will change, including immigration. Um, and there are some people in our communities who have uh, unwelcoming attitudes towards newcomers, uh, but they are, as you've pointed out, uh, a- at a historic minority level when you look at public opinion polling. Um, One of the things that I I think uh, people have come to understand is the the fact that social change is happening, whether we like it or not. Um, I I think a lot of people are tempted to harken back to uh, a time in history out of a sense of nostalgia that that maybe never really existed. And there's uh, often a temptation when these conversations come up to advocate for the status quo Uh, But maintaining the status quo in a lot of our communities isn't possible. So if you look at the counterfactual to the the question that you've asked, uh, what would happen if we didn't welcome large numbers of newcomers? I I can tell you what would happen because our communities have lived through it in rural Nova Scotia. Uh, I come from Pictou County, as you know, Don, and I think back to my first election campaign in 2015. Two of the most uh, hotly contested issues, though they were not within federal jurisdiction, uh, were the closure of the River John Elementary School and the loss of the mental right. health unit at the Aberdeen Hospital in Pictou County? Um, the River John Elementary School didn't have some major problem with the building. Uh, young people were moving out of the community, uh, and the province, uh, I understand uh, why, uh, couldn't afford to continue to operate the school. Uh, we lost a psychiatrist at the largest regional hospital in northern Nova Scotia, the Aberdeen Hospital, and couldn't safely operate the mental health unit. I understand why the decision was taken, but if the young professionals were moving into our community at that point in time instead of leaving, we may never have lost that mental health unit. And I've never seen uh, something so extraordinary as the change in attitude towards newcomers as I have in my own community when we came to realize that – we could avoid losing more schools and hospital services if we started to bring people into our community rather than watch them leave. I I told you at the beginning of our conversation that I'm one of those young people who moved out to Alberta uh, to uh, seek an opportunity to pay off student loans. Uh, I'm thrilled to see when I look at the data, there's more young people moving into Nova Scotia than are leaving for more or less the first time since I was a kid. Uh, This Hmm. is an extraordinary change that we've seen and I, I think one of the, the things having lived through this and having uh, seen our community live through a depopulation for most of my life until the last few years uh, is uh, that the decision to stop welcoming large numbers of newcomers would have devastating impacts. And I think people know that. So sure, there's risk if we continue to bring in more people. Uh, but I can tell you, I'd far rather have conversations about whether we can build houses quickly enough to accommodate so many people wanting to move to our communities instead of continuing to have conversations about losing schools and hospitals because so many people are leaving.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, your department uh, has a little bit of criticism related to the major backlog and those waiting to be approved to be allowed into the country. I think the number, last number I saw was, I might be wrong, is one2 million people waiting to be processed. Uh, what is being done, Sean, to address this backlog?
3: Um, sure. So identifying the solutions to a challenge demands that you understand the nature of the challenge. Um, hmm. It's uh, important to, to put into context where these processing challenges came from. Uh, and look, there's some good news at the end of this story, but I'll walk you through it nevertheless. Um, um, so a couple of things happened over the past few years to our immigration system. Uh, The primary challenge is a a hangover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, What happened during COVID-19 that impacted our immigration system had had two components. Uh, First, public health measures all over the world impacted our offices, which are located all over the world. Uh, Many of them had to close down and for privacy and security purposes, We didn't have the ability to have people work from home in some of our foreign offices, the same way that we do for people who were working in Canada. So the system lost a lot of horsepower for a big chunk of the pandemic. In addition, uh, we had our borders closed to protect the public against the spread of COVID-19 in our communities for the better part of two years. And what we saw was uh, that we made a decision to transition more people to permanent residency who were already here, and to continue to accept applications for people who wanted to come to visit, even though the borders were closed because we didn't know when they were going to open back up. That created a situation where we continued to have applications coming in when we weren't necessarily processing those applications for people who were outside of the country. So we had a buildup of applications in the system. And at the time that I was appointed, we had a couple of years worth of applications in the system, uh, much more than was normally the case. You add on to that volume uh, the necessary response to both uh, the humanitarian crises in both Afghanistan and Ukraine, uh, which we've now seen hundreds of thousands of applications come in through between the two programs. Uh, And you, uh, you see that Canada, in the meantime, had also become literally the world's top destination of choice for workers who wanted to leave their home country to pursue opportunity elsewhere. And we see a record demand coming in, in addition to the pandemic and humanitarian-related challenges. Um, What that uh, did to our system was put an unprecedented amount of demand, and we needed to to respond in order to overcome it. Um, The solution uh, involves uh, three different categories, if I can try to simplify it. Uh, The first is resources. Uh, uh, We're in the middle of one of the largest hiring blitzes in the history of our department, adding 1,250 new staff this fall to process applications more quickly. Uh, But you can't just add people. You need to change the way that you process to become more efficient as well. Uh, We've relaxed a lot of administrative requirements in the system. Uh, Some of it is uh, relaxing, for example, the policies around requiring medical examinations for people who've had one in the past five years. Uh, offering automatic extensions for low risk study permits and work permit uh, extensions, different policies like that. I spent my summer identifying a few dozen policy areas where we can offer simple solutions to take pressure off the system. Uh, But the third chapter, in addition to resources and uh, uh, policy, uh, is leveraging technology. Uh, We are using far more uh, digital tools whether it's online applications, virtual case trackers, uh, virtual interviews, or advanced analytics to process cases more quickly. Um, We've seen our productive capacity increase somewhere in the ballpark of uh, 50% over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, And what this is doing is allowing us to greatly chip away at that backlog of cases in the inventory. Uh, between uh, the end of uh, July and er- early November, I'm waiting for sort of the early December numbers, I haven't seen them yet. Um, we, uh, we've knocked about 320,000 cases out of that inventory and uh, we've already restored now the uh, ordinary service standard we had pre-COVID uh, for economic and family reunification for permanent residency. Uh, we just this week are back. Uh, this is actually the first time I'm sharing this publicly. Uh, we're backed um, on our service standard for study permit processing. Uh, we expect by uh, the early new year, uh, maybe January, maybe February, uh, to be back to our 60 day standard for work permits. Uh, And we're already back for uh, key markets in the United States and India, which are a a big source of workers who come here temporarily. Uh, Visitor's visas will spill deeper into next year before we're back to the 30 day standard we enjoyed pre-pandemic. But we're on the right track. And um, uh, six months from now will be a a very different picture than uh, we had six months ago.
1: Right. When do you anticipate
3: being totally caught up? Um, it'll depend on a few decisions we have to take. Uh, so we, we with the exception of visitors visas, uh, more or less caught up by February, uh, visitors visas are probably going to be, uh, sometime, uh, in the summer of next year. I'm looking at options to see if we can accelerate that because I want to make sure for the next, um, Uh, tourism season and and, uh, wedding season when people are traveling from all over the world Uh, they have an opportunity to come and visit Canada visit their loved ones uh, contribute to the local economy Um, and we're looking at options to see what further measures we can implement to uh, accelerate that uh, that timeline
1: Uh, as we've already talked about Canada has among the highest per capita rates of immigration in the world and is slowly building the most multicultural population in the world as well. The recent census as you earlier referred to indicates that more than one in five residents um, currently living in Canada were born in another country. Can you tell our listeners the the various streams that are available for those wishing to immigrate to Canada just for clarity?
3: There's really three ways that, that people come to Canada through our immigration system. Uh, You come typically as an economic migrant, as a uh, family reunification uh, application uh, or as someone in need of humanitarian protection. Um, That's it. Uh, Those are the ways that people can come to Canada. Uh, the economic programs have quite a range of, of different sub-programs, uh, but that typically represents somewhere between uh, 55 to 60 percent, depending on the year of the overall immigration levels. Uh, mm-hmm. The immigration system uh, has a major focus on a- economic migration for people who are coming to help grow the economy, make a contribution to our communities. Uh, family reunification, uh, that's uh, typically a little bit more than 100,000 on uh, uh, the current level of uh, uh, 465000 for 2023, uh, so you're dealing with somewhere in the ballpark of 20-25% um, uh, in a given year uh, that are coming through family reunification streams. The primary uh, subcategory is um, uh, spouses and children. Uh, I'm yet to meet a person who thinks it's a bad idea to allow the uh, spouse or kids of a Canadian to come to Canada. Um, And we process, uh, we we estimate whatever the demand will be uh, to ensure that we're not uh, turning our backs on family members of Canadians. Um, We also have a parents and grandparents program that allow uh, a person's, uh, uh, well, parents and grandparents, I suppose it's self-explanatory, as well as their dependent kids to come to Canada. Uh, the demand for that program is is through the roof. Uh, it uh, We get almost 10 times as many applications as we have spaces uh, uh, that are available. Uh, so we have temporary programs that allow people who qualify to come for up to 10 years as a result of a, a policy change that we've uh, recently made while they wait for their application to be processed for permanent residency. Uh, and then of course, uh, refugee resettlement. Um, Last uh, This coming year, uh, we expect there will be uh, about 76,000 uh, people coming to Canada uh, who are either coming as a refugee or, or as a, a protected person or a person who's been granted asylum in this country. Um, Canadians uh, have an enormous appetite to continue to be uh, moral leaders on this issue in the world. Uh, one thing that you may not be aware of, Don, each of the last three years, according to the UNHCR, uh, United Nations High Commission for Refugees, for those who might not be familiar with the acronym, uh, they've indicated that Canada has resettled more refugees in each of the last three years than any other country in the world. Uh, Not per capita, uh, in terms of raw numbers, Canada has done uh, more to welcome refugees than any other country in the world. Um, In addition, uh, each of the last two years, Canada has resettled more than one third of the total number of refugees who were resettled globally. This is an extraordinary tradition that we should be very proud of. Uh, One of the things that's remarkable from my perspective um, is how the rest of the world uh, views this to be something they're doing for charitable purposes. When I travel internationally, they all wonder how Canada can manage to offer permanent residency to so many people who are coming in need of humanitarian protection. But we've got a viewpoint as a government and as communities in Canada, I would suggest, that refugees aren't coming here to take from our communities, but are making an extraordinary effort effort to give back. Um, The uh, global success story of Peace by Chocolate, Don, uh, uh, got its start um, two minutes from the hospital where I was born in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. Uh, But this isn't a a one-trick pony. The Hadad's uh, story is, of course, um, uh, worth sharing globally. Uh, But look at Glenhaven Manor. Uh, The new economic mobility pathways program we created uh, to welcome refugees who happen to be displaced people but are coming for economic uh, purposes, Uh, that's allowed long-term care uh, professionals to help uh, work in in the town of New Glasgow, which is allowing seniors to age in the community where their grandkids are being raised. Uh, I was in Toronto recently and met a guy named Omar who came from Syria uh, that is now a top cloud computing specialist for Shopify. And is one of their uh, greatest experts for one of the fastest-growing companies over the past decade in Canada. Um, the reality is, we're going to keep doing the right thing, uh, but we're not afraid to acknowledge that it's also serving our self-interest at the same time.
1: Right. But we recently had Tariq uh, had had on our program. It was a really fascinating and and inspiring story. I, I wonder, do you anticipate any changes to the proportions of people coming into the country in the various streams looking ahead?
3: So as the numbers grow, uh, the the primary uh, reason for the continued growth in our numbers over the next few years is to satisfy uh, certain economic needs. Uh, we're not looking at doing less to support vulnerable people. We're not looking at doing less to reunite families. Uh, in fact, we're going to continue to try to uh, do more. Uh, But if you look at it as a proportion of the overall number, our intent is to grow the economic slice of the pie, given the intensity of the labor shortage that we're facing and the changing nature of our economy, which is going to require us to continue to bring people in who have the skills that will be in demand over the course of the next generation. Uh, But we're talking about uh, adjusting upwards from... Uh, 57% to 60% over the next few years. Uh, Now this represents uh, thousands and thousands of additional workers who will be coming to uh, help grow Canadian businesses and to sustain the jobs of Canadians who are working for those businesses now. Uh, so we've got uh, very close to what I believe is the right proportion, but every year these are subject to change on the basis of uh, humanitarian crises we might respond to. If you look back at the immigration levels plan that was tabled before we knew Afghanistan would fall to the Taliban and were, would require special measures, we probably had a slightly higher economic uh, proportion than uh, that we had planned for a slightly higher economic proportion than we in fact had because we weren't going to let that get in the way of doing the right thing to support those who supported Canada during our time in Afghanistan. So it varies year to year, uh, but we're typically in the the similar ballpark to where we are now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, just one other question on refugees. Obviously most recently uh, we've been, accepting a lot of Ukrainians to the country, which is, um, uh, again, has been well accepted by the population. I, you know, it, it, you're, not, you're not targeting refugees in terms of a number, but do you anticipate in the coming year that the numbers would be about the same number or perhaps higher than the, than the past year?
3: Um, yeah, so we, we actually do uh, allocate a particular number of, of spaces, but it's subject to things that might happen uh, in the right. world that we need to respond to. Uh, So, we work with uh, international organizations and partners all over the world, and and the total number is in the ballpark of 75,000 for each of the next couple of years uh, that we expect for humanitarian purposes. Uh, Notably, that doesn't include uh, people who've come from Ukraine, uh, who are technically not coming as refugees, because we had to create a brand new program uh, that focuses on providing temporary protection. Um, My first reaction uh, when I was sitting down to develop a humanitarian uh, immigration program for Ukrainians was to ask myself, can we develop a refugee resettlement program? Um, What I came to learn, uh, in part through the Afghanistan effort, uh, was that our refugee system is designed to uh, welcome people who've long left a conflict zone and have been living in a refugee camp or a host country many times, in many cases, for for years. We needed something that could allow us to respond very quickly to a changing situation on the ground. Um, And we needed something that would allow us to bring in larger numbers of people. Uh, What we landed on was actually, uh, uh, look, necessity is the the mother of invention. And um, what we landed on was essentially using our tourism system uh, with some protections around security screening uh, to welcome Ukrainians here who wanted to come. Uh, we uh, used a temporary program and attached a work permit or study permit to the program for a period of three years because we have the capacity to process millions of people through the tourism system each year. Our refugee resettlement program allows us to deal with uh, tens of thousands and we need to work very closely with the settlement sector to ensure we have capacity for people. Um, the advantage has uh, uh, of using this temporary system in a fairly novel way uh, to offer Uh, a temporary safe haven, uh, has allowed us to uh, now uh, process hundreds of thousands of, of applications uh, including uh, now more than 100,000 Ukrainians who, who've landed in Canada over the course of the uh, uh, the past uh, the past year since the uh, the war of aggression by the Putin regime uh, had uh, gotten underway, um, we've learned something really unique here that we plan to share with the world. And to the extent we can identify crises going forward where we can offer temporary protection, uh, we've developed a tool for the first time that allows us to help in a a much more significant way than ordinary refugee resettlement would. Um, I expect we're going to have a large number of people who want to transition to permanent residency, but by providing a three-year period for people to get here, to get their feet under them, to work or to study, um, we now have people who've been given enough time to go through the permanent residency resettlement process while they're benefiting from this temporary protection should they wish to stay.
1: right? Yeah, it's probably anticipated that a lot of them will want to go home after the war is over, too, I guess. Um, The Atlantic Pilot Immigration Program uh, was very successful and is now a permanent government program. And in fact, I believe it's kind of being replicated in other parts of the country. Uh, Tell us the basis for the success of this program. And how many immigrants do you anticipate will take advantage of this program to come to Atlantic Canada in the coming year?
3: Look, I love this program. Uh, the very first thing that I did when I became the Minister of Immigration was made the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program a permanent program. Um, mm. It's no, <laughs> and you, that shouldn't be surprised to anyone from Atlantic <laughs> Canada. Um, the reality is, though, this program was due to become permanent because it's been so successful. Uh, we've seen the retention rate under the Atlantic Immigration Program uh, outpace the retention rate of every other immigration program. Uh, the genesis of the Atlantic Immigration Program came as much from demographics as it did from economics. When we sat down around our caucus tables in 2015, uh, when every member of Parliament from the Atlantic region was part of the uh, the governing side of the House of Commons, uh, we all understood uh, the kinds of stories I shared with you about the River John Elementary School and the Aberdeen Hospital. Uh, the reality is that wasn't unique to my community. Uh, I remember in that early meeting. Uh, I showed up and I planned to make immigration a big thing I wanted to uh, raise in that conversation. I think I was seventh on the speakers list and six people had raised the need to boost immigration before I did. And (laughs) I thought, okay, this is a good sign. We're all on the same page. Um, We got to work with the uh, four provincial governments in Atlantic Canada to help develop a program that would actually promote people to come and to stay in Atlantic Canada. It was one of the first times we used place-based, employer-driven uh, uh, theories to build immigration programs around. The strength of it to have somebody come here with a job and with the ability to bring their family with them to a specific region has created something that I is successful beyond what I could have imagined. More than 90% of the people who come through this program are staying in Atlantic Canada it's a remarkable achievement. We started out to your question about how many people are going to use this program. Uh, We started out when this program launched about five years ago with 4,000 people that would come through this program. Uh, Next year, that number is going to be 8,500. By 2025, that number is going to be 14,500. Uh, we're going to continue to increase the number because we see that it's working and we see that the Atlantic provinces are hungry for more people. And we're gonna continue to support the the provinces in their quest to grow, uh, including through these federal immigration programs.
1: That's a good segue into my next question. You know, for decades, Atlantic Canada did not receive a share of immigrants, which really led to population stagnation for most of the region a slowing of the urbanization process that has happened in the rest of the country over the previous 50 or 60 years in an aging population, obviously. <clears throat> the good news, uh, and by the way, per perspective, in Canada, the last census, I think the number was 21% born in a foreign country in Canada. The, the comparative numbers in, in this region, as you know, very well know, I think Nova Scotia and PEI lead at about 6 or maybe 7%. So we're way behind the rest of the country. The good news in the past year is that the three maritime provinces have led the country in terms of increased population. In fact, PEI had an astounding growth rate of 3.7% in the last year alone. But you know, I wrote about this recently, and, and uh, you know, I'm a big proponent, as you probably know, of immigration, have been for a really long time. I'm a little worried about that pace of growth because we really have had no experience. We haven't had the, even the experience of the rest of the country of growing at 1% and all of a sudden PEI is growing at almost four times that rate. And it's the pace is so quick that, you know, it, it, we're really not ready for that growth. And, and so the question is, you know, is is this a problem for our region? We've gone from one extreme to the other extreme and you know, are we ready for that pace of growth, growth to be able to deal with it?
3: There's no question that uh, the rapidity of the growth we're experiencing creates challenges, but challenges associated with growth are so much better to deal with than challenges associated with depopulation. Uh, you gotta remember that it's never uh, a matter of just um, managing things as they are. Uh, social change is happening whether we like it or not, and it's up to us to manage the kind of change that we want to see. Uh, collectively right. as as communities. Um, I do think we need to do more to continue to prepare for this kind of growth. Uh, but the good news is we're launching a, a policy review on immigration beginning in January that will be completed by the spring. One of the pillars of that policy review is going to engage across uh, all federal departments The ancillary policy support areas we need to uh, help ensure that we can successfully integrate much larger numbers of people, including in Atlantic Canada. This is going to make sure that we're creating the tools to plan for larger populations from an infrastructure point of view, from a healthcare services point of view, from an education point of view, from a language training point of view, public transit, Mm. you name it. Um, It's going to be a fascinating thing. My own vision, uh, though this is not... Uh, yet official government policy uh, is that we're actually going to allow communities uh, to start considering, if they wish, what they look like at twice their current size. Uh, the reality is I grew up in Marigamesh, but the growth that we're going to see in northern Nova Scotia will not be um, a, a, on the shore road as much as it will be in New Glasgow or Antigonish. Uh, mm-hmm. If we improve um, the density uh, of certain communities that allow more people to live close to where the services exist, Uh, We'll be better better able to afford things like public transit, water and wastewater services. We'll know where the next ball fields are going to go, and and, uh, provinces will be able to better plan where a school will need to be built uh, 5, 10, and 20 years from now. If we engage in a thoughtful long-term planning exercise today, uh, we will be able to handle these growth numbers without much problem at all. Um, If we choose not to do that long-term planning exercise, then our system will face more pressures than it needs to. Uh, But when I look at these numbers to see that we've tripled the percentage of newcomers who are coming to uh, Atlantic Canada over the past number of years, uh, and not just tripled the percentage, but tripled the percentage of a much larger pie, uh, that means that we're experiencing population growth that will allow us to combat the demographic wave that I'm so concerned about. Uh, But we need to plan in a thoughtful way, but that planning is being done now.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, I've been promoting the idea of economic hubs across the region. I don't know if you heard about this or not, but I've been doing that for a long time. Um, there are 30 communities across Atlantic Canada. You, your department should focus on those 30 communities. They all have critical mass of about at least 5,000 people. They all have critical infrastructure like regional hospitals and post-secondary institutions. I, I believe you're right. If we're going to if we're going to distribute the you know the growth in the population, they need to be focused on these smaller urban areas that really allow nearby rural communities. Pictos a really good example uh, to you know prosper because they have a nearby urban area that's growing and and providing opportunities and services. So maybe your department will look at that. <laughs> Um, economic uh, hub strategy as part of that because I think uh, there is some support for that concept across the region. One of the uh, major challenges uh, facing uh, Atlantic Canada currently is that 75% of immigrants are ending up in only six of the largest urban areas I wanted to know what initiatives your government is undertaking to, to ensure other areas of the region are receiving their fair share of immigrants to, to address their own population in workforce requirements.
3: Um, this is a, a, a great question because as we discussed earlier, uh, the absorptive capacity of communities is an essential consideration when you're trying to make sure you're setting people up for success. Uh, So there's two things that we do uh, to try to manage this issue. Uh, One is create programs that encourage people to go to areas that are more rural or or smaller towns than than larger urban centers. Uh, The other is building in the supports for people in those communities so they have the opportunity to stay after they arrive. So on the uh, the first category of measures, sort of encouraging people to get out to those areas, we are really embracing regional immigration programs. I mentioned the expansion of the Atlantic immigration program. Uh, what we're seeing is that people are not exclusively going to Halifax, but are actually going to other parts of Nova Scotia. And, and you could say something similar about the other Atlantic provinces, uh, whether they're going to not just to the, the main urban centers in those Atlantic provinces, but smaller communities as well. Uh, We've expanded uh, the rural and northern immigration program uh, to allow more people to live in uh, local service centers, but work in industrial bases that surround those areas. Uh, We are going to continue to work with provincial governments who are adopting streams that uh, bring people to areas that have that capacity by increasing the allocations under the provincial nominee program. But the other piece that is uh, really a a neat uh, innovation comes from this uh, revised uh, express entry system that we're going to be launching this spring. Uh, We're going to be able to target people based on what part of the country that they're going to for the first time. So for those who may not be intimately familiar with Canada's immigration system, if you're coming through a federal stream today, you're competing based on a score you get that's a factor of your education, your work history, your language skills, your Uh, family demographics, and a few other factors. Uh, It spits out a number, and we take uh, the uh, top-scoring people every time we do a draw on the system. Uh, What we're going to be able to do now is to say, rather than taking a a general draw that will bring exclusively the most highly educated uh, and most experienced people, uh, we'll be able to have the highest-scoring people in a category that meets a certain definition. So if it's nurses in Nova Scotia that we want to do a draw on, We'll get the high, most highly qualified nurses who are coming to Nova Scotia. If it's carpenters in Toronto, we'll be able to get the most highly skilled carpenters in Toronto. Uh, so we'll be able to do a targeted draw based on a person's skill set and the part of the country that they're going to. And part of this equation will factor in people who are going to communities that actually have the capacity to successfully integrate them.
1: All right. I-, I wanted to mention, by the way, in our conversation with Tariq Hadhad, He indicated that an immigration officer had purposely directed him to Anikanish. I thought that was very interesting, Sean. And he was the first uh, person from Syria to, you know, go to Anikanish. Now, here we are only a few years later. And he told us there are now 200 Syrians living in Anikanish. Not only that, but he said no one has left. You know, I think that that's a great story. I don't know if you had heard that story or not, but I thought I'd mention it to you. Um, there are a lot of uh, uh, people from other countries currently working in Canada as temporary workers. That's a different category. I, I wonder if you can uh, you anticipate an increase in the demand for temporary workers uh, looking ahead. Maybe tell us how many temporary workers are currently in the country and, and maybe which categories are most in demand at the moment.
3: Sure. So we have um, uh, a couple hundred thousand temporary workers in this country at any given point in time. It, it fluctuates enormously based on uh, the, the season, based on the year, and based on the labor market dynamics. The, there's something that uh, a lot of people may not appreciate about the divide between our permanent and, and temporary immigration programs. Uh, Our permanent immigration programs uh, include uh, space for, well, in a few years, it'll be 500,000 people who will become permanent residents. Uh, Our temporary programs have no limit. Uh, They're meant to respond Hmm. to demands of communities. And it makes sense. If you think about the number of tourists that we want to welcome, we want to welcome as many who want to come. Uh, When it comes to temporary foreign workers, uh, whether you're in tech or agriculture or health or or some other industry, um, the It's a demand driven program that's designed to meet the needs of employers who don't have the ability to find Canadians to do those jobs. Um, That can happen for a whole host of different reasons. Um, Mm. I expect that uh, we're approaching a a near all time high in demand for the temporary foreign workers program right now because of the magnitude of the labor shortage that employers are facing. When you bring somebody in as a permanent resident, you wanna make sure that they have the skills that the economy will need for uh, many decades. Uh, when you're bringing somebody in as a temporary worker, they're designed to fill a, a temporary gap in the labor force uh, to ensure that employers who can't find the talent they need to grow have access to the, uh, the people that they need to sustain their business. Um, the sectors uh, that use this program uh, run the gamut. Uh, agriculture, obviously, is a big one. In Atlantic Canada, seafood processing is a big one. Uh, but we sometimes have the uh, misconception Uh, that the temporary foreign workers program is exclusively for these um, jobs that, uh, I I don't really like the phrase lower skilled, uh, but a lot of people uh, uh, view to be uh, less skilled than other professions. Um, But it's really important that we understand that we have uh, healthcare professionals who are coming in as temporary workers the global talent stream is bringing in software engineers for growing tech companies as temporary workers. Uh, There is no shortage of high skilled uh, people who are coming to Canada on a temporary basis. And it's quite common for us to have um, a couple hundred thousand in Canada at any given point in time, in addition to half a million international students and millions of tourists each year.
1: Yeah, I I just have a couple other questions. One of the questions I have is about foreign students in the country. Um, I did a study when I still owned uh, my company that uh, with the AAU, and we talked to um, a large group of international students about their intentions after graduations. We found that, <clears throat> that uh, I think it was, might be wrong, 62%, I think, or something like that, <clears throat> would prefer to stay in Canada permanently and work in, in the, not only in Canada, but in the communities where they were educated. So cl- clearly a big opportunity source for new immigrants <clears throat> who would live as Canadians and, and be educated ca- as Canadians and, and be kind of ready to go upon a grad- graduation. Can you tell us how many foreign students are currently in the country, what the trend is, and is is there any strategy that's focused on foreign students specifically by your government?
3: Uh, yeah, uh, there, there is. Um, so a, a couple of things. Uh, first, um Canadians should come to appreciate the enormous contributions that international students are making to our economy and to our communities. Uh, the sector of, uh, represented by international students represents um, about $23.5 billion uh, into mm. our GDP. This is wow. a serious, serious contribution uh, on, on par with many traditional sectors in our economy. Uh, and it's growing rapidly. Uh, So, if you go back the last year before the pandemic, we uh, would have seen somewhere in the ballpark of uh, um, 320,000 study permits uh, that were finalized uh, by our department. Uh, Last year, uh, that number climbed to about 415,000. This year, we're at uh, Um, 524,000. We're dealing with, uh, at any given point in time. Uh, half a million or more uh, international students that may be here in Canada uh, studying, uh, often working and uh, uh, making a contribution to our communities. Um, A lot of them transitioned to permanent residency. Um, Their last year, uh, of the 406,000 new permanent residents, 157,000 got their start as international students. Uh, So this has become a stepping stone to permanent residency and it's really an incredible thing when you see because you're dealing with people who are educated in Canada that can overcome a lot of those foreign credential recognition barriers because they have an education from a Canadian institution. Um, Mm -hmm. They're often young people who want to stay in the community, who have 30, 40 years to give to our community uh, or or sometimes more. Uh, It's really an incredible opportunity for us to embrace international students as part of a growth strategy. And to your point about people wanting to stay where they're educated, think about what this is doing for Cape Breton at CBU. Think about the potential for a community like Antigonish or Wolfville who wants to grow their population in a smaller town that has access to talented people from all over the world. Um, One of the challenges that we have, we are developing right now a pathway to permanent residency for international students, but we don't have the capacity to do it for every international student. If you think about the numbers I just shared with you, there's half a million international students in Canada, approximately, and we are moving to 500,000 new permanent residents uh, in total by 2025. If we were to create a pathway to permanent residency for every international student, that would mean that we could do no other immigration. Uh, That would not be good policy. So we want to leverage the strength of the express entry system and allow those to compete based on the uh, skills that they're bringing in uh, to the uh, to the economy uh, and transition to permanent residency if they have uh, the, the most to offer to our communities. I've got big ambition for immigration, uh, but it's difficult to manage uh, these kinds of numbers if you were to try to create a pathway to every single student. Uh, But we do our best to um, uh, open the doors to some of the world's most talented people who are coming to study in Canada and and do want to stay.
1: I had no idea that about a third of people coming in really were international students for permanent residency. That's that's an amazing number, frankly. It uh, is. And to
3: your question earlier about sort of housing pressures, a lot of people have sticker shock when they see 500,000. It's important to realize a lot of the people who become permanent residents are already here. They're here temporarily as students, they start as right. temporary foreign workers. Uh, this is a transition to permanent residency. By leveraging the talents of people who are already here and giving them the certainty to stay, we can increase yeah. their economic output without uh, putting too much pressure on the system.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah. One of the other issues facing immigrants, particularly professionally trained um, immigrants, is getting certified in their field of practice. This is particularly uh, critical for those in the medical field today. What actions are, are the is the government undertaking to address this
3: this ongoing issue? Uh, look, thanks for this, uh, Don. Um, it's um, it's so offensive to me uh, that we have. Uh, family doctors, surgeons, uh, and healthcare professionals driving taxis in this country. Um, I met uh, a dental surgeon uh, last time I was in Toronto, uh, who uh, fled uh, Iran, uh, whose family is he's still waiting to be reunited with, who can't get licensed uh, to practice his profession. Um, I was at the first aid tent we set up with the Red Cross at the Vancouver uh, International Airport. Uh, to help welcome Ukrainians who had first aid or mental health needs. And I asked one of the uh, young people uh, providing first aid uh, what her background was and what inspired her to to show up. Uh, She was a professor of neurosurgery in Iran. Uh, Mm. And uh, and she said that she was volunteering at the Red Cross uh, so she might be able to get into med school to start all over again in Canada. Um, This is extraordinarily uh, uh, difficult for these people, and we are losing out as a country. Um, You may have seen I I made an announcement just uh, about a a week ago um, to have $90 million uh, being offered to efforts to um, uh, boost foreign credential recognition. Uh, this is going to allow people to streamline the regulatory process, whether it's provinces, regulatory associations, post secondary institutions, nonprofits, municipal governments, uh, whatever it may be, uh, to actually streamline the process. Um, it's also going to allow people to put forward a proposal that will allow more people to gain work experience in Canada. And, and frankly, it will also allow people to better streamline regulations between Canadian provinces. It's crazy to me in the age of telehealth. Uh, that a family doctor in Alberta can't hop on a Zoom meeting to give a basic prescription to somebody in Nova Scotia because of the licensing requirements not allowing an Alberta doctor to practice in Nova Scotia. Uh, The last time I checked, uh, my joints and organs are the same as somebody in Alberta. And I don't mind somebody who's been educated at Dalhousie, but licensed to practice in Calgary, uh, being able to prescribe medicine to me and my family. Uh, These are the kinds of simple solutions we need to be advancing both within Canada and for professionals who are coming from abroad. One of the challenges that we have is that we don't have the jurisdictional authority to uh, legislate changes to provincial regulatory bodies. Uh, Provinces do and we wanna work with them. The one thing that I've mentioned a couple of times during this podcast that's useful in addition to the money we're putting on the table uh, is the new express entry system that allows us to select uh, professionals by the sector that they work in. I'm not going to do a draw for family physicians that are going to go to a jurisdiction that's not going to let them practice. If we're going to uh, be bringing in healthcare professionals We're going to reward the jurisdictions that have figured this out. So, we've created a new incentive for uh, provincial governments and regulatory associations to make changes that will make it easier for people to practice under the understanding that we'll be able to better leverage uh, the opportunity for professionals to get here.
1: Yeah. Well, obviously, it's a critical area. We need to take advantage of the skills coming in, obviously, as quickly as we can. I just want to ask a couple of uh, quick final questions. Uh, I, I guess the first one is related to uh, what what is the focus of your department in the next uh, 12 months? What's the key focus?
3: The key focus is right now, uh, let's get workers here to uh, combat the labour shortage. Um, this is not the only focus, but we got to remember that the newcomers coming in to help Canadian businesses who've been punished over the last couple of years are going to help those employers stay open and sustain the jobs of the Canadians who are working for them now. If we continue to bring people in to help support Canadian businesses and Canadian workers, uh, we're going to be much better positioned over the next few years to recover from these pandemic challenges. I also wanna make uh, good on our commitments that we've made to Afghanistan and Ukraine. There's a moral imperative to help some of the world's most vulnerable people who are seeking safe haven in Canada, and we have to fix the processing challenges that I described earlier. If we can get workers here, do right by the world, and fix the meat and potatoes of the system to make sure people have predictable timelines to get to Canada, to be with their families, to work in jobs and to seek protection, I'll be very happy with the job that I've done.
1: And I couldn't let you go uh, you know, as the senior member in the Trudeau cabinet for your comments about uh, how you think things are going in your home province.
3: Um, you know what, it's um, it's a tough question because at a macro level, uh, things are going well. We're seeing population growth, we are seeing economic growth, uh, we are seeing one of the fastest economic recoveries, and the opportunity that I see over the next five years for Nova Scotia is greater than I have ever seen. At the same time, at a household level, not everybody's feeling that success. Uh, I'm talking to my neighbors, um, uh, sorry Don, I... I um, It it can be a little bit emotional by times. Uh, People forget sometimes when you become a minister that you're still an MP. Uh, I spent my summer talking to people in my community. Uh, I met somebody in my community this summer who said they won't take their kid to Sobeys anymore uh, because they're afraid that they're going to see the cashier tell them that they don't have enough money in their account to pay for what's in their cart. And they don't want their child to watch them walk back to the shelf to put a box of Cheerios away they can't afford And my view is that in a country as rich as Canada, a parent should be able to buy breakfast for their kids. That is the very basic that we should seek to provide. Um, There are people who are really struggling with the rising cost of living. Uh, There are people who are really struggling with increased mortgage payments, the rising cost of groceries, and we got to do more to help people who are in need. When I talk to young people, they're worried about their ability to ever buy a home. They're making decisions about whether they're going to pursue an education, and I fear there's a a deficit of hope uh, for young people that their future will be as as bright as they thought it would be just a couple of years ago. I'm ever optimistic, though, uh, because when I see the opportunities for new industries to emerge in Nova Scotia, when I see the tech sector targeting our province, when I see opportunities for the green economy to get off the ground, and the hydrogen opportunity in particular in Nova Scotia, when I see more young people moving into our communities than have ever moved into our communities in our province's history, uh, when I see more people coming to study and then wanting to stay in Atlantic Canada, um, I know that the prognosis is good, and we have to make sure we provide supports to people in the interim to get them through a very difficult time So they can actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. So they can actually see an opportunity for themselves that is better than what appears uh, in front of them today. Uh, So despite the fact that I will remain ever optimistic about the future of Nova Scotia, uh, we got some work to do to make sure people see themselves in that future for Nova Scotia. Uh, I'm excited because I think we're on the right path, uh, but we got to be very sensitive to the very real pain that a lot of families are experiencing right now.
1: Well, Sean, thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and really providing an excellent overview of Canada's efforts to build the, the Canada's population and workforce. Uh, we really appreciate your, your time.
0: You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legier helped produce this episode. and You can hear past episodes and follow the show by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And remember to submit your questions for David and Don about the region's economy in 2023. You can send them by email to news at huddle.today. That's news at huddle.today. And thanks for listening. Don and David will be back again next week.